podcast series, we'll be speaking to industry leaders from various business verticals and understand their approach towards marketing and growth. We'll be focusing on key aspects like customer acquisition, retention, engagement, personalization, among others, and provide key insights to our community of marketers and product owners. This is your opportunity to learn and emulate these learnings in your campaigns and marketing initiatives to churn exceptional results. So we're here today to talk about what subscription models uh, should your mobile app implement and strategies to drive app growth. Um, and the reason we're talking about this today is mobile apps have seen a record number of downloads and consumer spending in 2020. And consumer spending particularly globally has reached close to $112 billion. Um, and as per a recent census our survey, a fast growing part of that spend is actually subscription payments. Now, last year alone, global subscription app revenue from the top 100 subscription applications, excluding gaming applications, has actually grown 34% year on year and is now sitting at 13 billion. And that's up from $9.7 billion in 2019. Now, mobile app developers are, of course, increasingly turning towards subscription models as a means of monetization. But for this to develop into a successful business model, subscriptions must be supported by a very clearly defined mobile growth strategy. And among the most frequently downloaded types of subscription apps, we've actually found streaming applications to be the highest at about 30.7%, gaming a far second at about 9%, and news apps at about 4%. Now, while subscription models are common across almost all verticals, the nature of the subscription model, of course, varies considerably and different models call for different uh, strategies. And that's some of the things that we want to unpack today and talk about. So welcome to the Growth Maestros podcast. I'm your host, Hustle. And in the session, we're going to be talking about and discussing app growth strategies for subscription applications, particularly, and how you can leverage some um, of the more common subscription models, like the freemium subscription models to drive growth. Today, we've got with us David Bernard, who's a developer advocate at RevenueCat. And RevenueCat, of course, makes it simple for you to build in-app purchases and subscriptions, manage pricing, customers, and analyze your app business with no server code required. RevenueCat also simplifies implementation, solves edge cases, and manages subscription status. So you can focus on what you do best, which is build your app and let the IAP infrastructure be taken care of by then. David, welcome. Thanks a lot for joining us. And how are you today? Uh, doing well. Uh, a lot of allergies here in uh, the Austin area today. So I'm, I'm hopped up on antihistamines and nasal spray. All right. <laughs> Fine, well, I'm, I'm sure you're feeling good. Yeah. All right. All right, cool. So David, before we kick off, uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit. We'd love to know a little bit about what you're doing right now at RevenueCat, um, all of the work that you've done in the past, and maybe the most interesting use case or problem that you've solved around app growth, particularly. Sure. Um, yeah, a little bit of background. I, I started with mobile apps pretty much day one. Um, I founded my company within a few days of, of the iPhone SDK being launched. I had an app in the app store within a month of the app store launching. Um, so I've been around to see it all. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of folks, um, you know, toward 2015, 16, 17, it was just more and more clear that the you know, paid upfront business model wasn't going to work. And so, um, so I started switching my apps to subscription. Um, and then interestingly, I kind of ran into all the problems that revenue cat solves. Uh, I work with uh, contractors, um, and, and partners who do the coding and I work on, on the, the business marketing, you know, pretty much everything except for the code. Um, and so I spent a ton of money on my partners, burned a lot of time um, trying to figure out the, the infrastructure and payments and working with the app store and store kit and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I, I actually came to RevenueCat as a customer, um, it, you know, looking for them to solve my problems. And then one thing led to another. And uh, I started working for them in uh, 2019 as developer advocate. So I've been here two years now. 
Um, and then at Revenue Cat, you know, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's a, it's a startup. I was employee seven. Um, and so I'm kind of all over the place. I, I hold weekly office hours where I talk to our customers and prospective customers about, you know, app strategy and things like that. Um, uh, I also uh, uh, run a podcast uh, sub club where we interview founders and mobile growth practitioners and pretty much anybody in the in the subscription app space um, just to, to talk about the ins and outs of, of running a subscription app business. Um, and then, you know, all sorts of other stuff internal of Revenue Cat, you know, will help help out the product team on testing because I still run my subscription apps on the side. Uh, so it's kind of fun being, you know, a customer of Revenue Cat, but then also a um, being inside the company. Uh, so then as far as uh, growth strategy, um, you know, personally, I've I've leaned pretty heavily on on. PR and kind of more organic stuff. Um, I don't have a ton of experience or almost any experience personally in, you know, ramping up ad spend. You know, I've never spent a dime on Facebook. I have experimented with Apple search ads, um, but I rely pretty heavily on, on just telling good stories. And so, you know, my apps have been featured in TechCrunch, The Verge, New York Times. Back in the day, you know, GQ Magazine ran a thing on my uh, uh, Gas Cubby app. So, you know, for me, I think that the strategy is partially just figuring out a good story to tell. You know, why, why does a writer at TechCrunch care about your app? You know, does our audience care? Are you leveraging a new technology in an interesting way? Are you, um, you know, coming out with a, a special new widget when Apple and everybody's excited about widgets? It's like, you know, if you can find a compelling story to tell around your app and pitch it in a really strong, concise way, you can land some of that free PR. And then similar with Apple, I mean, getting featured isn't what it used to be. Gosh, I mean, getting featured back in like 2010, 2012. I mean, there were times when, you know, we'd make um, between press and Apple featuring us, you'd, you'd make $60,000 in a day from just that crazy amount of traffic that you can drive. And that was sometimes a strategy of just, you know, get a line up a ton of attention for for one day you know get apple on board ahead of time um and and it could just drive some crazy traffic to a paid app um but now the world's changed and and the you know apple featuring an app isn't kind of a make or break thing anymore but it's a great kind of organic source and so you got to think what's apple interested in you know they, they want they're pushing ar technologies they're pushing widgets they're pushing whatever new features are in the new ios update you know they they are really interested in subscriptions and so being a subscription app i think um uh, helps with getting featured um having good reviews you know all those kind of things and so um, you know, figuring out what stories you can tell um, and why different folks in the in the press and Apple and uh, influencers and otherwise would potentially be interested and then tell that story. All right. All right. Now, and that's actually quite interesting. And that's also looking at Apple and a lot of these publications as a means to attract more users and as a means to marketing. Um, and and looking at growth through that, so that that is quite interesting. Uh, now, before I go into any of my other questions, I, I was quite curious. I noticed you were a recording engineer before the mobile <laughs> app world hit you. What what happened yeah. there? Um, well, uh, a few things. One, I actually studied recording technology at, at university and. Interestingly, there, there are a lot of parallels between kind of product management and what you have to do in, in building, in, in working in the studio. So, you know, uh, as with, you know, the times I'm critiquing an art uh, design work for my app or app icons or whatever, you know, sitting in the studio, you're, you're kind of coordinating this project you know, going from a few songs scratched on a, you know, notepad to, you know, finished album, um, you know, you're sitting there critiquing the, the, the vocal performance or the, the guitar solo or whatever. And uh, so a lot of the kind of product management skills um, that I've leaned on heavily since founding my company 
were actually things I, I learned specifically and practiced at university and working in a recording studio for years. Um, but then what precipitated the, the change was actually um, getting married and, you know, wanting to start a family. And I was working, um, you know, noon to 2 a.m. and my wife was working nine to five and we were hardly seeing each other. And, and I was making, you know, like no money. And so I was thinking, you know, if I'm going to, if we're going to have kids, you know, and, and at some point if she's not going to work, if we have kids or, or, um, you know, just trying to figure out how we we're going to build a family, it just didn't make sense to, uh, to, to stay in that, um, that recording studio environment. All right. All right. Now that makes sense. And, and last question on your previous life, uh, anybody famous you ever worked with? Probably the most, well, I, I did intern at a recording studio in Nashville and met uh, Brad Paisley, um, okay. met Leonard Skinner, the band. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say All I right. worked with them, but I was an intern and, and uh, you know, got them coffee and, and <laughs> ran around <laughs> and plugged things in. Um, as far right. as albums I actually worked on, um, there's a, a band that's pretty well known here in the in the Texas area called the Derailers, uh, and they had okay. a pretty big hit hit song like in the early 2000s. And um, yeah, so no, you know, no uh, huge rock right. stars, but I just worked at a small studio out here in the Austin area. And, um, and, okay. and, uh, you know, did a lot of the stuff, um, myself, you know, there's bigger studios in the Austin area, but you know, you, you gotta, you gotta start as an intern and slowly work your way up. And, and, uh, by working contract with a smaller studio, I got to kind of run the show more, which was a lot of fun. All right. All right. Cool. Now that, that is really interesting. And, um, you know, I love to see the shift from what you were doing earlier to where you are. Um, I, myself started in the food and beverage industry and then got, got myself into marketing technology somehow. So I'm always, always fascinated by, <laughs> by some of these journeys. Uh, right, cool. Well, let's get back to why people are listening to us and, and that's subscription businesses. Uh, so the first question on this that I really had is, there's of course a lot of different types of subscription models out there right? There's the pay to use models, the basics from folks like Netflix, the pay to upgrade or the freemium models like Duolingo. Um, and of course, the um, I think sort of newer ones, the pay to pay less model, right? Folks like Uber that allow you to subscribe and save uh, money on your day-to-day -day interactions with them. Now, is is any one of this or are any one of these models superior? Um, is one better than the other? Um, and of course, I'm sure all of them have their own unique benefits, but is there something that sets any one of these models apart? Um, I, I think it's, it's almost exclusively um, contextual. It depends on, on what sort of business you're trying to build, but then also kind of what the market is willing to to bear. So I, I think one of the more interesting things that's happening right now in the subscription space is games getting into the pay to pay less model. So, you know, you picked Uber as a pay to pay less. Um, and, and you know of course they do you know physical services where you're driving around in a car um but what's super fascinating to me is these hardcore gamers being willing to pay a subscription to then get discounts to um on gems and discount and you know special uh packs and you know all those kind of things i'm not personally super into these sorts of games although i, I will say i've i um i've been playing uh pokemon go with my kids and um have spent more money than i ever would have expected <laughs> playing <laughs> this this uh freemium game and you know as as much as it, it's fun it's a, it's a fun kind of game with the kids because it gets us out and walking and and moving and stuff like that you know, but if if Pokemon Go introduced a you know two ninety nine a month subscription to then you know in, in Pokemon Go you you the things you have to buy are things like uh, incubators because you incubate an egg and you hatch a uh, hatch a Pokemon, 
um, you uh, think things like that are the things you buy. And so if there were a subscription to uh, get some of those for free every month and get discounts on others, I would probably subscribe <laughs> um, right. because I play it enough with my kids and it's it's fun and you know they they uh, they love it and and um, are constantly drawing Pokemon and and uh, playing Pokemon on the switch now and stuff like that. So um, so yeah, I think you know that one's really fascinating. Um, the pay to pay more for those types of, of games and those sorts of apps where you do have these individual purchases that can kind of be bundled and, and, um, and things like that. Um, but then on the, uh, on the kind of, uh, freemium model, I really think that, that for a, for the apps that are, that don't fit into the pay to pay more, I think the freemium model is, a really strong model for for utility type apps, especially if you can, and it's not always possible, <clears throat> but if you can offer a freemium tier that is actually useful and can be useful over time. So right. what I think you're gonna see some apps do really well over the next decade, and in a perfect example of this, actually Revenue Cat customer, and we, we I worked really closely with them as they uh, ramped up on our platform, um, is the Zero Fasting app. So they okay. were a free app for I think two or three years before they introduced subscriptions, and they had, I, I don't know exact numbers, but I know they had millions and millions of downloads, I think hundreds of thousands, if not a million plus monthly active users um, before they switched to subscriptions. So you had all these people getting value from the app for free. So when they introduced the subscription, they're very careful about not taking away any of the value in that freemium tier, but actually adding value on top. And so what, what you have in that sort of case, and they're, they're a perfect scenario, it's kind of hard to, to replicate you know, that kind of success as a completely free app and then add on to it. But what they had was a, a very highly engaged um, set of, of customers who weren't paying anything but obviously saw the value in the app so that when they added value on top of it it was very attractive for people to upgrade and and by being really careful in not taking away some of that value from the freemium tier they've retained a lot of those free users who still haven't upgraded but what they're doing as a company is over time they're layering more and more and more value so that if you if you can maintain those free users over time you just get more and more opportunities to pitch them on your subscription app and you're pitching people who are already getting value and that that's what's really tough with the the pay to use models like you're talking about with netflix is that yeah, you can have a you know seven day free trial or you know things like that, but you you have to have something that's so clearly valuable to users, and then once they pay, it's engaging and value. They're actually you actually deliver on that value, um, and, and sometimes that's that's hard to do. And and then depending on how your your marketing spend goes. You know, a lot of times having a really hard um, paywall, you're going to shed a ton of users just from download to you know trial conversion. And so, you know, if you're spending two, three dollars per user on acquisition, and then you're shedding you know eighty percent of them right off the top, um, that works because you know if you can get whatever it is, the ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent. If you're you know doing really well, you're getting twenty percent. Um, that works, you know. If if your subscription price is high enough, or you can get them on a monthly tier, I mean, an annual annual tier um, to get your return on ad spend on that small percentage. But if you think about it, you know, for apps that can offer a a, a, a solid freemium tier and still convert that 10, 15, 20 percent, now you have those users that you paid to acquire um, still finding value in your app, still using it, and you're right. going to get more opportunities to do it. So 
but it's a it's tough and this is where it's so contextual because like my weather app we're actually doing a huge update to it right now adding widgets and apple watch complications and things like that well guess what weather app is weather data is very expensive and when yeah. when you put it on the watch or a widget it's updating every 15 minutes so a single user is going to blow through a lot of data so i can't offer that for free um, and so the pay to use model is, is the direction we're going to have to head with that. So we are going to have a freemium tier in the app where you can use the app for free, but you're not going to be able to use the widgets, the complications and things like that for free, because we just can't afford to do that because of how expensive and data intensive it is to deliver weather data to these, um, complications and widgets. Um, so, so each app really needs to take all of this context in and figure out what the optimum model is not not just what you think the optimal model is for for what's going to make you the most money but money, what yeah. the market is actually going to um respond to favorably so and, and that's what's really tricky about freemium and even pay to use where you're if you have a really harsh paywall is that you know how do you communicate that value and then where do you draw those lines between the free and paid features um, because that's that's where the rubber really meets the road and i think too many apps um draw those lines in you know product meetings and then don't experiment with them over time don't do user research don't um you know do enough research to see how other apps have iterated over time to land on different models and so um yeah finding finding that right balance um, of, of freemium and or free trial is is really the key to to making a successful subscription app. Okay. All right. Now that, that makes sense. And particularly today, there's just millions of apps out there, right? There's a yeah. hundred thousand other apps doing the exact same thing that you're doing. And how do you communicate the value before you're asking somebody to pay for it? Because nobody likes to pay. Right. Yeah. Um, and and on that note, right, like how how do developers figure this out? Right. If, if you were to give them some sort of guidance on what are the factors to think about uh, before you decide on what subscription model works for you and particularly for the pay to use model, at what point do you build that firewall? Uh, sorry, paywall. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the. Uh... <laughs> pretty literally the billion dollar question. I mean, you know, um, I, I think, I think re researching and really understanding how other successful apps are doing it. So, so for example, a lot of, um, and I've used this example a lot, but Calm's paywall is something a lot of people have copied. And I did it myself. I was like, well, hey, Calm, they must have like A-B tested this to death. Like this is, this is yeah. like the paywall, you know, if they're using it. Um, and that was my attitude for, for like six months or a year. And then it dawned on me, Calm's paywall works for Calm, not because of the paywall, but because of everything you were just talking about is, is the way they communicate the value leading up to the paywall. Uh, it's actually a blog post that I really should write and have kind of half written in my head is that the paywall is actually not as in, the paywall itself, like the design of how you communicate the features and where the buttons are and the colors. Everybody likes to A-B test those kinds of things to death. But you know, my kind of contrarian opinion here is that, that the paywall itself, the design of it, is a hundred times less important than what you were just talking about, about what features, about how you communicate the value before they get to the paywall, what that onboarding experience is like. And then Calm is, a, is one of my favorite examples because people who get to the Calm paywall are tapping a button that says like LeBron James's pregame workout or like Matthew McConaughey reads me to sleep. There's like, there's this, you know, celebrity stuff in there. There's, um, you know, they have um, a couple of uh, programs that you can go through 
uh, like 10 sessions for free. I haven't, I haven't looked in a while. I should actually look again to see exactly how many they're giving away for free. But, you know, let's say, you, you know, you, you did those 10 sessions and you've had success. And then that, you know, 11th session is when you hit the paywall. Um, and so, you know, what's happening to communicate that value before you land on the paywall is, is so much more important than, than the color of buttons on the paywall and things like that. So you, you need to help users understand what they're getting before the, the, ideally they would understand it before they get to the paywall. Cause most people don't read and, you know, you think you're really clever with all these different, you know, pitches and things like that. But, you know, uh, and then, you know, it's the kind of thing that, that you should probably track in Mo Engage and, and other tools if you're using them is, you know, how long do people spend on the paywall? Are they scrolling if it's able to scroll? And things like that will give you some hints and you'll probably find that they spend less time and read less than you would ever think um, on average anyways. And so, so yeah, I think yeah, the key don't, is, what's don't that? Don't users already have their mind made up if they've hit that paywall? They, they already have a decision in mind. Don't they, I don't think they always do, but more often than not. Yeah. More often, like, like the vast majority of people have their mind made up before they hit the paywall. Um, even if they don't realize it too. And that's one key too, is yep. that like, you know, a, a lot of people will just hit the X button immediately on the paywall without even reading because like, they're just not even in the mindset that this is valuable enough to pay for. Um, right. so yeah, and and that's the key, right? Is like, how, how do we through onboarding and it, and it goes all the way back to when the user first becomes aware of your app. So if it's, you know, if, if you've got a bunch of PR incoming, if you're, uh, depending on exactly what your ad is saying to the user, set those expectations coming into the app store, then the app store, you have your screenshots, your icon, your subtitle, and you know, they're probably not going to read a ton necessarily. They're going to scan and glance, but that sets expectations. And they then, uh, you know, and a lot of people forget this, but just because they installed your app doesn't mean they ever open your app. So some people will hit that download button after an ad and then they get distracted An email comes in somebody, you know, kid falls in the playground, whatever. Um, and so they never, they never even open your app. So it's like, you, you just like all these different funnels. And so then maybe three weeks later, they see it on their home screen and they're like, what is this? I don't even remember. And then they're coming into your app with different expectations, but hopefully you're kind of, you know, you have some kind of idea of how you want people to perceive the app, the problems it's solving, the value you're delivering, and then you get to onboarding and that's such a key moment. And I think a lot of folks um, over index on, you know, quote, best practices um, where and, and don't really understand why those best practices work for those specific apps. So again, like back to the Calm example, it's like you can look at Calm's paywall and think, oh, this is the ultimate paywall but not understand all the context of what led up to that. And similarly with onboarding, you can kind of follow quote best practices on what you should do in onboarding. But if you don't understand why each of those is working in the various contexts, you're not optimizing your onboarding experience. So, so way too many people have way too much onboarding that's, you know, educate the users. Well, guess what? Like, that most people just skip through that and they don't read or whatever. And so you're, you're squandering this perfect opportunity to take a different approach that would actually resonate better with your users. So thinking through every screen that they're going to hit before they get to your paywall of, is this, you know, communicating value? Is this helping? And, and again, it's like, it's when I say communicating value, that's not like, a thousand words in a scrollable yeah. like tutorial thing like that's not how you like that's not how you communicate you think that's communicating value and in some ways it is but yeah. it's not getting through if people aren't reading it so so maybe there are some apps that a thousand word 
onboarding actually is the right thing to do, even though it's contrary to best practices, but that's where you got to figure out what's the value you're delivering and how do you most effectively communicate that to users. And for each app, that's going to be dramatically different. So if all you're doing is following best practices without doing user testing, without, and, and A-B testing is a little tricky, I think, there a lot of folks over index on on complicated ab testing solutions and they're they're you know before they even get their mvp out they've got you know thousands of dollars a month in 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 tools that they're using optimizely because that's the best and really when you're early there's so many ways to kind of bootstrap this kind of testing like release a new i talked to uh, darius mora from reflectly and they they did amazing with this they had a weekly cadence where they would make big bets on a weekly basis and then just look at the traffic from one week to another um and you don't necessarily need to have sophisticated tooling in like that kind of um you know you you probably shouldn't be using optimizely until you're you're you've got some level of product market fit you've got more yep. users coming in to to even get to statistical significance on some of these tests um, so early on you can do these kind of you know a a b tests without any sophisticated instrumentation just by making big bets and changing things up in different releases and then trying to keep right. others relatively constant so you know if if apple features you one week um, you know, you want to disregard that data in your, your experimentation and wait another week or two till things calm down to then make a big change. And then you can, you can just see the difference. And then, and then, you, you know, early on, you should have some instrumentation around, um, and Mo and Geisha is great at this with understanding the user flows and things like that. So they, so that you can get some understanding of, of what users are actually engaging with and what they're not, um, but again, you know, I think it's especially early on, it's just taking these big bets and trying things. All right. And, and I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? Especially what you spoke about the, the Calm example. Now, for most people downloading the Calm app, they already know the value that they're expecting out of this application. So early on, that, that isn't always there, right? When, when you're right. acquiring your first few users, they don't really know what they can expect from you. So th that best practice from Calm really doesn't translate very well at that stage, does it? But on that note, how, how do you make sure that, um, you know, especially with these first few users with that set of early users, how do you make sure that you're constantly A, communicating the value that you want to them and B, collecting the right feedback and building from there? And how do you use this data to figure out the right uh, subscription strategy for your app? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say collecting this data should um, inform, I mean, it, it can inform, you know, what you pay well and what you don't. Um, so for example, um, in my weather app, we had this feature that I thought was so clever um, and I still think it is, and, may, and this is this is where you know I struggle to do these things well. Um, so we have this feature um, around adding your syncing your calendar with with our weather app. So in your list, okay. you'd have a list of cities if you're you know want to track your current location and your you know parents or a couple of specific locations, and then you know often people will just track two or three. Um, and so you have all this potential space. And so we ingest your calendar events. And so you'll see your cities and then you'll see your, your calendar events. So if you have a, you know, a soccer match coming up, if you have um, a hike that you're planning for the weekend, like you can sync that calendar and then see in your list that event and so you know we thought this was super clever and this this goes back to what i was saying earlier it was a great story to tell it was an innovative feature that sounds interesting and compelling um and so we put it behind the paywall <laughs> so and and you, we got a bunch of press around it and so early on that did drive some conversions um but then usage of the feature was terrible and then once and this is one of the downsides to 
using uh, press as an acquisition strategy is that you get a big influx and then often that tapers off pretty quickly. And so the organic users coming in weren't prepped ahead of time from those press articles explaining right. this cool, compelling feature. And so what we found was that people just didn't get it. You know, we weren't right. adequately communicating it in the app. And so with that one, we experimented with pulling it from out, pulling it outside the paywall. Um, and again, we still didn't see a ton of engagement. So those are the kind of experiments that you can do. Um, and, and, you know, and again, if you're going to be spending time on infrastructure, being able to move things in and out of the paywall and do those kind of experiments are probably a better use of engineering resources than installing a sophisticated A-B testing tool, like just right. tracking those kind of engagements and then being able to move stuff in and out of the paywall, being able to um, experiment with how you communicate those things. Um, and of course, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been running this as an indie developer, very bootstrapped, you know, I don't have full-time engineers working on this. I don't have a t much less a team. So it has been a slow right. iterative process, but again, it's like, those are the things we were able to do, even as a small team, pull it out from the paywall, look at, you know, how people are engaging with it. Are people syncing their calendar? Are they not? Um, is are the people who sync their calendar more likely to come back or less likely to come back? Um, and so those are the kind of experiments that you can do in relatively unsophisticated ways that can help you better understand your users and then can help inform those, those paywall decisions. All right, makes sense. So what you're saying is experimentation and A-B testing is great, but it's probably better served in testing the value that people perceive from a particular feature and how you're communicating that value rather than what that paywall page looks like and how many words are on there, at least yeah. early on, right? Yeah, okay. before, you're, before you go A-B testing the color of your subscribe button, <laughs> like, you know, make some bigger bets and try some bigger things. Got it. All right. Now that, that is really helpful. And, and going back to another point that, that we spoke about was how people tend to drop off really, really quickly as soon as they hit a paywall, right? And churn and uninstalls is obviously a really, really big problem for all mobile apps because just the amount of competition for that little bit of real estate on your phone is so high. Now, for subscription apps, we, we actually see on average a 50% churn rate or a 50% retention rate. Uh, any, any insights on how, how should a developer look at this data? What should they be looking for? What metrics should they be looking for? And how do you uh, figure out what, what to do next? Yeah, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but value, 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 value. I mean, yeah. you know, what what drives retention is people actually finding value in your app. And so I'll give an, I'll give another example. Um, I recently signed up for and just paid a subscription to a service called Readwise. And it's something I I've always wanted and 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 it, the minute I signed up for their service, I the value clicked to me. The 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 reason to pay. So what it does is it um, you can sync your Kindle, Instapaper, um, Twitter bookmarks, and things like this, and it gives you a daily digest to review highlights from previous reading or previous tweets or previous things, and then it uses space repetition to help you better retain and ingest some of these um, insights that you've learned through reading in different sources. Um, and, and Instapaper, similarly, if you, you know, that amazing um, uh, growth uh, um, blog post that you read, if you drop it into Instapaper, highlight some of the kind of take home points, and then it syncs with Readwise. And then over the next few months, you'll get some of those key highlights repeated over time to like really sink in. So amazing product. I'm pitching it here. You know, I'm, t I'm, I'm pitching the value. So, but that's yep. the thing. It's like, it was so instantaneously valuable to me that 
subscribing was a no brainer. And, and it's one of those things I, I I'll probably use this for the next 10 or 20 years because right. I, because I understand the value. And then, and then they do some, they do some really smart key things that do keep that engagement. And it's a product that kind of naturally lends itself towards re-engagement because the, like a Duolingo or, or other services like that, you naturally come back. So they have a daily digest, yep. they send an email daily digest, and then the app, they have an app now that sends you a push notification, you read through it. And so not only am I so convinced of that value, but then every single day I'm reading the daily digest and being reminded of that value. But on the flip side, um, another example I love is Visco camera app, also revenue cat customer. <laughs> um, I, it, it's so fun working at a company like revenue cat, especially being there so early, you know, employee number seven, you know, we've just grown so much. And so more and more of the apps that I actually use every day and subscribe to are now using revenue cat. So it's, it's just, it's really fun. But Visco, uh, I've used that for gosh, six, eight years. And I don't use it every day. I don't even necessarily use it every month. But the thing to me that's so valuable about Visco is that when there's a photo of my kids, of my dog, like I just took some pictures of my dog yesterday, um, when there's a photo that I deeply care about that's meaningful to me, I want it to look its best. And the Visco camera app makes it so easy to do that. I have, you know, preset um, filters that I, I really like the look of, that kind of warm things up, you know, uh, uh, smooth out the skin tone. And so it's like, I know if I drop that into Visco, it's going to look its best. It's going to, you know, I try not to be like super heavy on the filters and stuff, but, but I just, you know, that those little subtle things can really make a picture yep. stand out, you know, increasing the contrast a little, those things. And so with Visco, it's the value isn't that I use it every day, that I use it every week. It's not a habit formation. It, it's nothing like that. It's the value is that when I do have a picture I really care about, Visco is the first place I go. So when you think about okay. you know engagement and retention and all that, that's why it comes back to me so clearly about value is that it doesn't matter if they're using your app every day or every month or every year, if they see the value in it, that's what retains users, not necessarily um, forcing a habit that, that, that isn't natural to the app, um, you know, re-engagement right. strategies that aren't, you know, natural. Cause you know, there's a, a lot of re-engagement strategies that really turn people off. Like once you get that, yeah. you know, hundredth email, um, a great example of that is um, Tinkercrate. Um, what, what's the name of that company? Um, I forget the name. It's like an educational company, and my kids um, get these crates every month that they they um, build things and do art, and it's a really cool service. Um, but they sent me so many emails and, you know, some retention person inside the company, you know, thinks they're doing great and maybe enough people convert. But when you, when you have a, an engaged user, I was already subscribed for a year. Like I paid up front, then you can dial back some of those things that are just like constantly hammering people. And then, you know, again, refocus on the value. If they'd have been sending me a weekly email that was like, you know, how to play with your kids, how to interact with them building these crates, you know, how the thing they build is um, uh, teaching them these lessons, I would have actually engaged with those emails way more so than these just incessant pitches for this discount that and new whatever, because uh, I already subscribed to three crates. Um, so, so again, backing up, and, and that Tinker Crate example is so key, I didn't find their re-engagement emails valuable. And, I, and then it just, I didn't even think about it, but I just explained what I would have found valuable. And so that's what, like, as a company, you need to be thinking. It's like, if I'm going to do a re-engagement campaign, if, you know, what are my re-engagement strategies, they need to be focused around the customer and what value the customer is getting and what they find valuable in those re-engagements. 
and the pace of use that they find valuable. Readwise, my pace of use is daily and I love it and that's why it's valuable. Visco, my pace of use is totally random, but that's what's valuable for it. So, so those are the things that I think you have to think about in, in retaining users is what, what's the real value they're getting versus what you know, number do we see on a dashboard that's going down that scares us? Um, because yeah. that number that's going down that scares you might not actually correlate with what's actually gonna keep people subscribed. Sure, no, absolutely. And the number of times I've had this conversation with marketers that more messages does not equal to better <laughs> engaged users, that there is no straight correlation to that. And oftentimes more, engagement more messages just more communication if it's not valuable has just the opposite effect right like we, we've also seen a lot of times um, brands sending six seven push notifications in a day and that causes a oh, spike man. in uninstalls because i don't want that i have enough yeah. notifications today so so yeah that that is something that i find quite funny because i i find myself having this conversation a lot in, in saying that marketing as it used to be is sending more messages it's just not that anymore it's it's value it's do i yep. see this message and think if wow that was helpful or this was interesting or can you stop selling to me i just bought a phone yesterday i don't need another one today <laughs> right uh, yeah but but yeah and one of the other points that you made and to me that's quite interesting with the wisco app you you don't use it every day right uh, but what a lot of the best practices out there for subscription talk about is habit formation is use it every single day get your users to get hooked onto it uh, but you are a valuable customer even though you're not using it on a daily so how and, and do you have any tips for developers to identify those high value users for them because they may not always be the ones that are most active they may not always be the ones that are spending the most money either how do you identify those high value users yeah that's a, a great question again <laughs> multi-million dollar question the apps that figure this <laughs> out do really well and the apps that don't yeah. do poorly um, because when you don't understand these things about your customers you make bad decisions around your re-engagement campaigns, around your marketing, around your paywall, around everything we've been discussing. Um, you, before I get into like specific tips, um, I, I think there's a really interesting kind of mental model, a framework to put this in. Um, and, and I'm stealing this from um, Eric Crowley. He, he does this amazing, he's an investment banker at uh, GP Bullhound, focused on the subscription app space. So they do investments in uh, the subscription app space. They do M&A advising and all this kind of stuff. So he does an annual report on this consumer subscription space and they just released a new one um, uh, last week. And then I'm actually having him on my podcast this week and then we'll release it in a few weeks from now. Um, but in there, he talks about, um, and there's a, a whole slide on this and, and it really, it could be its own, you know, conference talk or presentation is this concept um, of tourists and locals and how, uh, and what I think one of the key, key um, charts in there is um, subscriber retention and LTV for locals looks really different than tourists. And so the people who are just coming to check your app out and don't stick around, um, you know, they're obviously going to churn faster. They're going, their LTVs are going to be lower. Um, but what so many companies do is they just look at average LTV. And so your, your average LTV looks so different. Um, and this is another thing I actually want to talk to him specifically about, and I've been talking to other folks about is that we don't even really understand LTVs for mobile subscribers yet. You know, Calm is, is four or five years in, um, and they have subscribers who've been there five years and might be there another 10. Like you, we don't even know, you can't even really 
guess what the real long-term value of these customers are going to be and that's what's so beautiful about the subscription model so you have to you have to make a, a cutoff you have to you know when you're doing your analysis you do have to say okay you know what's our ltv at nine months at uh, 90 days or whatever so you can make the numbers work um, on your ad spend and other expenses but but really we don't even know what ltv is going to look like and that's what's great about this concept of identifying locals versus tourists is that these locals you're going to have cohorts that stay subscribed for for years and years and years and years um and so i think that that's a great way to think about identifying them and 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 this is it it's it is really tough to find those metrics that are going to signal who's a tourist and who's a local. Um, and it's, it's, it's honestly getting even tougher with um, the IDFA going away and with all the privacy restrictions, which I'm in support of as a user, especially. Um, but but as a uh, as someone in, in this space, it does make our lives more challenging. And, and so an example there, and I don't think people have fully appreciated this fact yet, but Facebook and Google have actually done a pretty incredible job of helping you find who the tourists and who the locals are through their through their um, um, value optimization campaigns. So when you're sending uh, event signals back to them saying this person converted from a free trial and actually paid my subscription, that's feeding a signal back to them about the user who found your um, uh, app valuable enough to, to get through the free trial and not cancel. Um, and what they were essentially doing was I, you know, through machine learning and really sophisticated analysis and collecting a ton of data, uh, sometimes surreptitiously, um, but they were, they were kind of doing the hard work for, for apps in finding who those longer term subscribers and who was going to convert better. And so, so in some ways, I think that that's kind of made the industry over the last few years, a little more lazy in having to define these things yourself versus relying on Google and Facebook to do it for you. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's part of what's going to change in the coming years with privacy restrictions is that more and more of this is going to have to be up to the individual developers. And unfortunately, right. I think it is going to end up being very expensive to figure these things out because you do, you know, as we were talking earlier about taking big bets, it's like you can only take so many big bets uh, and, and you, before you burn a whole bunch of cash on user acquisition, sending people through the wrong right. onboarding. Um, and so, so, but at some point that, you know, the apps that are going to do really well are going to be figuring this out it's, is, you know, what, what different steps that they take in the onboarding funnel, what different engagements in the app. Um, uh, one huge signal that a lot of um, uh, people are looking at now is um, turning off auto renew immediately after starting a subscription. Because uh, a lot of folks are using that free trial just to get whatever value they can and have no intention of subscribing. And so that's one thing we do really well with Revenue Cat and we push to all our integrations is that within, usually within minutes, but definitely within hours of somebody hitting that unsubscribe button outside of the app. So you don't even have to be inside the app to get this data because we're refreshing it all server side and ingesting notifications is that we get that, that turn off auto renew event and are able to push that to Mo Engage, to Amplitude, to others in order to help understand those users who are immediately turning that off and being able to signal that either you know inside the app to create a different flow for those users if they even come back to the app um but it's those kind of things that you need to be um looking at to 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 better understand who are the locals like who who are here because they came in understanding the value 
um, and then orienting everything up the stack and down the stack around those experiences that people are finding value. And again, it's like, this is where A-B testing can really lead you astray, is that just because one onboarding step converts to the next onboarding step higher than the other one doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that it's the best thing for all of those down funnel events. And so once you can better identify, once you can better determine as a company, like who are these locals, what demographically, um, the marketing that is resonating with them, the, uh, the, the source, you know, are, am I finding them better on Instagram versus uh, Google or TikTok or through influencers or through press or whatever? Um, you know, looking at that whole life cycle chain, chain and, and not letting these, you know, color AB tests on a button kind of distract you from having a deeper understanding of what people are finding valuable, what's helping to communicate that value, um, you know, why do they care? And then what are those engagement patterns that are going to keep them coming back, even if it's not every day? And so all those things, I think, combine to help paint the right picture of understanding who your users are and and then that helps you better market to them better onboard them better communicate the value all right so what you're saying is these signals are still there while idfa may be changing how easily you can identify these signals right. <laughs> exist so it it isn't the end of the world um everything right. isn't going to come crashing down the day this happens but it's all still there. It just means more work for the developers to start looking at user behavior a little bit more closely, right. looking at demography as a factor, which I've, I've seen a lot of developers early in the stage not consider too much. They, they may look at source of data acquisition more than who those users are. So saying all of this exists, it just means spending more time trying to identify it and continuing yeah. to make sure that my journey as a user is different given what you know about me yeah and, right. and a, a great example there too i think a lot of people over index even on these events versus just talking to users and doing user testing so um and, and back to my example with my weather app of of the calendar feature i was doing some user testing where i actually just and, and these are the kind of things you just need to do as a as a product person as a growth person I just tweeted out, hey, anybody have a relatively non-tech savvy relative where you can record them doing a user session? And I paid them 50 bucks Amazon card. And I got like six people to do it. So, so is this perfect example. Um, one of the people who responded um, was doing a user session with his mom. And one of the questions in there was, you know, what current weather app do you use and what do you find valuable in it? And she said, the Weather Channel app. And what I found so valuable is that I go to squash tournaments uh, every couple of weekends, and I wanna know the weather for those squash tournaments. So, so I go in here to the Weather Channel app, and then I tap this button, and then I tap that button, and then I scroll, and then I tap that button, and then I scroll. And then look, you know, here's what the forecast is for um, my next upcoming squash tournament. And I was like, you know, this, this feature that we were trying to promote was that you can sync your calendar and it surfaces that squash tournament right in the front page of your weather app. And so that was just such a clear um, message to me that we weren't explaining that feature. We weren't explaining the value prop of that feature, but it also told me that some people would find it valuable. Um, right. And a, another great example of this, and uh, the founder of Photo Room shared this on our podcast recently, is, is um, he actually went to McDonald's and yeah. offered, I think, to just you know, buy lunch to folks if they would check out their, their app. And, you know, it's, it's, it's awkward. It's, it's hard to do. It's like the old, you know, code calling for salespeople or whatever. <laughs> um, but what he learned in those early feedback sessions from just random people on the street was that they weren't clicking through the onboarding they weren't like understanding and so what they did in the photo room app which is just 
probably the best onboarding experience I've ever had. So Photo Room is a is a it, it's like it, it they're basically unbundling Photoshop. You can remove the background from an image. And a lot of folks are using it for like Shopify stores and stuff. You take a picture of sneakers, removes a background image. You can put a nice, um, you know, background. It looks super professional, even though you're just taking pictures with your phone. Um, and it's just like magic. Like the first time you experience it, you take a picture of an object and then photo room removes the background. So what they do in the onboarding is after all of this user testing, they realize like, we just got to show them, we got to show them the value. And so the onboarding is, is how few steps can we put between somebody opening the app and having that magical experience. So you open the app, there's no like tutorial five pages long, a photo rooms this, and it's going to help your <laughs> Shopify store that, and you know, like best practices kind of yeah. stuff. What it, it's, it's, as few taps as possible to get you to have you pick a photo from your photo library and then from that photo library do the magic of removing the background and it's i forget i i should have uh, measured it but i think it's like four or five taps and you're experiencing okay. that and so the reason they got to that place is because they talked to users people. they talked to people that that was not an a b test that was not a um it was not even a you know a big bet and changing things week in week out it was a let's watch people actually use our app let's talk to them let's understand and i think too many i mean especially just in tech generally it's it's like we want to default to technology solutions versus human yeah. solutions but i think that getting back to those human solutions is gonna help you figure out these things often way more effective. Um, and I say all that, but a good user test, somebody who's good at user testing also understands the caveats and the um, implicit biases too. So when, right. you know, when you're sitting down with somebody at McDonald's and, and they're, you're buying their lunch, they have a different motivation and a different incentive than the person who's just downloading it from an ad on Facebook. And so yep. you need to understand the limitations of user testing and understand the context of user testing and not over index on one person's feedback, um, which I think is another mistake. It's like, okay, you do, you know, three user testing sessions and one person is really excited about this one feature. And so you build your whole company around it. Well, you know, that, you know, they may have just been excited because they were trying to make you feel better about, you know, if it's, if it's right. your cousin and you're doing your, you know, user testing on your cousin, um, and they're just, you know, trying to make you feel better. It's like, you also have to put all of this in context as well and understand the limitations, but it's similar to understanding, as we discussed previously, the limitations of AB testing, the limitations of, of, uh, you know, changing your paywall. It's like, you got to put all of this in, in much broader context, but use all the tools and, and, and don't for, don't forget to use some of these tools in understanding this. Don't over rely on technology, but don't under rely on technology. Don't over rely on user testing, but don't under rely on it. Um, so right. yeah, I, it's 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 a lot of work, but you know that's that's what it takes yeah. to to build something great. All right, now, and and that is really interesting, especially about you know something as simple as talking to people. I know a lot of us just don't do it anymore you're relying on dashboards and looking at all of these metrics and making decisions but they aren't always telling you the why right and right. talking to people's the quickest way to to get to that all right perfect so david final final question for all of our listeners is there just one key takeaway um, that you know you'd have for them if they're building a subscription business or maybe um, the one thing they absolutely shouldn't do when they're building a subscription business, <laughs> either or. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I've been a broken record most of this this podcast, but um, the one key takeaway is what we've we've hammered home over and over again is just yeah. is value. It's it, the people who are going to pay you, and they're going to keep paying you, are the ones who value what you're doing and in and, and 
you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of different aspects of value. Um, and, and that's another thing to explore as well is, is, um, this is something I've thought a lot about with my weather app is that one of the kind of jobs to be done, one of the value props of a weather app is, is, is like just killing time. It's like, it's satisfying curiosity. So, so while yes, you may want to, um, make sure that you handle the value prop of if it's going to rain, I need to know. So I have an umbrella, like that's key. That's one value that people can get, but just browsing the weather and, and, you know, people like to bring it up in, in social contexts, you know, what's the weather like? Oh man, it's going to rain next week. Oh, cold fronts coming in and, ah, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day on Saturday. We should go hiking. Like weather is, is a conversation topic as well. And so part of the value of a weather app is, is satisfying that conversational data need so that they can say, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day on Saturday. Um, and so, yeah. so we've talked about all different aspects of value, but that's one thing to also think about is that there's all different subtleties in what people do find valuable. And, and similarly, you know, entertainment, why do I subscribe to Netflix, you know? And, and I'm sure Netflix understands this better than anybody on the planet, but you know, sometimes it's just to veg out for 30 minutes in the evening. And so, you know, Netflix has done an amazing job of, of working on that kind of veg out con content. And so they have great veg out content. And so, you know, as you understand those different value props that people are getting out of your um your app your service your product whatever you can better tailor it to those different needs um so yeah value 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 <laughs> you're going to be right. most successful no, building but... a subscription app business if you um if you if people feel good about the money that they're spending and feel good about that recurring bill the people who are um who you're tricking into subscribing the people who you're um who would otherwise unsubscribe, but you've made it super hard for them to unsubscribe, you know, you're just creating terrible experiences and you're not, you're not building something that, um, is a great product. You're just trapping people. And right. so you, you want those people who see that bill every month and don't think, Oh, why am I still paying for that? You want the people who are like, of course I'm going to keep paying for that. Like how do you build those positive experiences for people and that positive, um, like how do you create a positive experience around them spending money and it's it's through delivering that value it's figuring out why they are willing to pay and then you know delivering on that all right now that that is super helpful so the takeaway here is make sure you're showing value communicating value and building on that value and the don't is don't trick people into paying for something they don't want Hey, right. perfect. David, thank you so much. Uh, absolute, absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing all of those experiences and those examples. I think they go a really long way in helping all of us understand what works, what doesn't work and, and why it all works, right? So thank you so much. And, and I'm sure everybody listening, uh, you know, feels the same way when I say that it, it has been an absolute pleasure. So until next time, David, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Bye.